On this week's edition of New York Now, a new step in the Cuomo impeachment probe. We'll have details and chat later with Politico's Bill Mahoney. Then, restaurants want lawmakers to come back to Albany after a crucial lifeline was scrapped last week by the state. Join us for a deep dive. And Republicans now have a presumptive nominee in next year's race for governor. Daryl Camp has details, and we'll sit down with state Republican chairman Nick Langworthy on their strategy heading into next year. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation law prohibiting it. And we will take them to court challenging it. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. The impeachment investigation into Governor Andrew Cuomo took a new turn this week, with lawmakers saying they'll now issue subpoenas as part of the inquiry. If you're not familiar, a subpoena is issued when someone doesn't provide information voluntarily. So if someone doesn't hand over a document when they're asked or refuse to sit for an interview, they can be forced to by a subpoena. And we don't know who the Assembly Judiciary Committee will subpoena as part of the investigation or what they're looking for. But we do know that the impeachment probe is not close to wrapping up. Assemblymember Tom Abenanti is a member of that committee and said this after they met this week behind closed doors. So we're not getting close to the end yet? Oh, no, not, not yet. No, no. This is, this is, this is, look, let's face it. We've given them a huge task. Right. There's a lot of issues for them to look at. They've already received thousands and thousands of, of pages of documents. They've already spoken to numerous witnesses. And so now they're in, in the process of sorting through all of this. So we don't really know much more about the investigation at this point, and we'll talk more about that later on the show with Politico's Bill Mahoney. But first, it's no secret that restaurants struggled to stay open through the pandemic, and many just closed altogether. But those that stayed open still have a lot of ground to make up as things get back to normal. And they were dealt a major setback last week when the state ended a crucial lifeline for the industry with just 24 hours notice. Now they're calling on lawmakers to return to Albany and bring it back. Take a look. When Governor Andrew Cuomo said last week that the COVID emergency was over in New York, many saw it as a renaissance for the state's economy after more than a year of hardship. Life is not about going back. Life is about going forward. And we've learned a lot since last year. We've learned many lessons during COVID. So we're not going to just rebuild. We're going to reimagine New York. But that wasn't good news for everyone. With just 24 hours notice, a series of regulations that helped businesses survive the pandemic were set to expire. One of them was the end of alcohol to go, which restaurant owners and distillers say was a big blow. Melissa Fleischu is the president of the New York State Restaurant Association. So I think a lot of people were taken aback um, and had purchased their supplies to keep providing alcohol to go. So it, it definitely uh, caused some shockwaves in the industry when it disappeared within, I guess, 24 hour notice. When the pandemic started, restaurants were forced to shut down except for takeout and delivery. And alcohol to go was a huge Hail Mary for those businesses. As long as someone was buying food, they could take a drink with them or have it delivered. That gave some pad for restaurants when sales were slow. Dominic Pernomo owns Yono's, a restaurant in Albany. You know, certainly having that lifeline uh, and additional revenue stream uh, was, was, was instrumental to not only our restaurant, but, but many others. There were some restaurants that strictly existed on takeout. Uh, so for them, it was, an even, it was an even bigger asset. 
For many restaurants, like Yono's, the end of the COVID emergency doesn't signal a return to normal. Owners say people aren't coming out to eat like they did before the pandemic, so their numbers are down. And now, restaurants are facing new challenges as they try to get back on their feet. Here's Fly Shoot again. The other thing that they are facing is a huge increase in costs. Um, a lot of the supply chain is, it's not broken, it's just bent at this point. So, you know, waiting for those supplies uh, to come back online is driving price up. So every little bit helps. And for some businesses that sell booze, alcohol to go barely made a dent. But for others, it's been a lifeline. Yankee Distillers owner Matthew Jagger says alcohol to go made up about 30% of his revenue. Um, you know, we want the best thing for all of the businesses that might be affected. We want the best thing for all of the residents of New York State. We want this to be over. Um, but this is a thing that is it's 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 taken our legs out from under us right now. And it's it's uh, it's it's disheartening, to say the least. But it's also not entirely Cuomo's fault. The state legislature was considering a bill that would have extended alcohol to go for at least another year. Lawmakers knew it would expire if they didn't pass the bill. But Democrats left Albany in June without acting on the legislation and without saying why. That didn't sit well with restaurant owners like Vic Christopher, who owns a few restaurants in the capital region. I imagine people would say that you didn't have this option before the pandemic and things were going okay, maybe. I mean, it depends on the restaurant. So post-pandemic, why should it be different? Why should you have these additional options? Because people discovered outdoor dining in urban areas for the first time last summer because of the pandemic. And right now we have an empty restaurant and everybody's outside on Broadway because we, the culture has changed. And uh, the way that this legislation uh, did not advance coinciding with the end of the emergency declaration by the governor's office caused for a very abrupt stop with about 24 hours notice uh, and in which that restaurants now have to change their business models immediately overnight. While we're, we're elated that, that the state of emergency is over, um, my biggest frustration lies uh, with the ineptitude of the leadership in the legislature. It, it, it makes sense, it makes too much sense, which I think is probably why um, they were trying to find you know, something wrong with it, but you know, it, it was working as it was working great for 16 months. Um, so now all of a sudden, why bring an end to it? And lawmakers aren't scheduled to come back to Albany until January, leaving at least six months before alcohol to go is even considered. Assemblymember John McDonald was one of the bill's supporters. He says that some lawmakers were wary of easing access to alcohol. Do you have any indication of why some would be opposed to it in the legislature? You know, there's always going to be a core group, and I, I've noticed this in the assembly. There's a core group that they rather not deal with anything that is perceived as expanding alcohol use. But the interesting part is, is that uh, this effort really, number one, pretty much saved a lot of restaurants. Number two, was immensely popular. And number three, quite frankly, I make the argument, it's much more responsible to pick up a drink and bring it home and drink it at home versus having it with your meal and then getting in a car and driving home. So I think people saw the logic behind it and said, geez, why didn't we do this before? On the other side of the issue is the liquor store lobby, which restaurant owners and distillers blame for the bill's breakdown. The State Liquor Store Association declined to comment for this story, but has said that extending alcohol to go would blunt their business. But supporters of the bill aren't buying it. Here's Christopher again. I think at this point, if, the, if you're looking at uh, New York State economics as a whole, you're not really feeling bad for the liquor stores right now. They had a phenomenal year. So let's get together and take care of the, of the independent restaurants. 
and fly shoot from the State Restaurant Association. From what we understand, they were up 20 to 30 percent last year while we had takeout to, uh, and, and alcohol to go for takeout and delivery. So, um, you know, this this is a win 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 for the consumer and for the restaurant industry and it's certainly not a loss for the liquor stores. So we encourage them to pass it. In the meantime, restaurant owners are doing whatever they can to stay in the black, but that's easier said than done. Pernomo from Yono's says that for many restaurants, there's a lot of ground to make up as the COVID pandemic comes to a close. Um, but the reality is we did 50% of the revenue of 2019 and 2020. Uh, you know, we have a six figure deficit that we need to dig out of, uh, and it's gonna take everything that we can get as far as revenue streams to come in. And Republicans are now also calling on Democrats to come back to Albany and reinstate alcohol to go. But so far, there's been no sign of a plan to return. And speaking of Republicans, party leaders were in Albany this week to hear from potential candidates for governor in next year's election. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl. That is correct. Republican County chairs met in Albany on Monday, where they heard from candidates for a number of seats, but most of the focus was on the gubernatorial candidates. They held a straw poll after those candidates spoke, which ended with Congressman Lee Zeldin getting 85% of the weighted vote. Zeldin said that the governor is in a vulnerable position going into 2022. Here is a look at his frame of mind moving forward. Andrew Cuomo is being stubborn and saying that he's not going to resign. He's holding a fundraiser and he uh, at this point is our opponent for next year. And we are running against Andrew Cuomo. We are running against the failed liberal policies of one party Democrat rule. I want balance in Albany. We're advocating for balance, political balance, geographic balance. Our state needs it. In order to save our state, we need that balance. So we also talked to Nick Langworthy afterwards, and he said that Zeldin's going to be like a franchise quarterback, to use a sports analogy, and everyone is building the team for the rest of the ticket around him. He actually talked about the super majorities in both houses, and he's like, hey, we want to avoid a primary because we're all we've got. So if we're divided, the resources are going to be split, and we won't be able to claim the houses back in the state legislature. I know that we're going to hear from him later on in the show, but I'm curious as to whether or not he is underestimating the importance of a primary. So did Zeldin say what his strategy is for next year? Obviously, it's going to be an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. It's an uphill battle, but he feels that the governor is such a weak position right now where he can basically be taken out easily with just facts, logic, reason, the fact that he has some crossover appeal, he feels, because he's won in Purple District. So Lee Zeldin feels that when he's comparing himself to um, Giuliani or to um, Rob Astorino, that he actually has more crossover appeal than them, which makes him the strongest candidate. I agree with Giuliani part, but not the Rob Astorino part. I really think Astorino would have more cross-party appeal than Lee, just because Lee really aligned himself with the president during the last four years while he was in Congress. But mm -hmm. um, we're going to toss to Nick Langworthy now because we talked to him about this. I think it's really interesting. I sat down with Chairman Langworthy this week while he was in Albany. I picked his brain a little bit about the party's strategy heading into next year's elections. Take a look. Chairman Langworthy, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Of course. So this week, Con Congressman Lee Zeldin was named the presumptive nominee for governor for next year for your party. And you met with all the county chairs. They heard from the prospective candidates. 
What did you hear from the county chairs about why they liked Lee Zeldin? Why is he the one that they're going for? Well, I, I think that the the interest in his candidacy is is sparked by the enthusiasm he brings to the campaign trail, first and foremost. I mean, most people uh, in upstate New York or, uh, you know, in the Capital Region or the Hudson Valley had not necessarily uh, known Lee Zeldin as um, they see the energy that he's brought to the table. They see his biography, you know, in, in who, what has brought him to this moment. I mean, he was a soldier, you know, serving our country in Iraq. He's a, really the first uh, person of the generation of uh, service members that served in uh, the post 9-11 era to seek a statewide office. You know, I think that gives him a unique perspective. You know, then he served our state in the state legislature. So he's, you know, not someone that just has federal service now looking to New York. He's someone that's, you know, been deeply uh, involved in uh, the mess that is Albany uh, <laughs> and then went on to serve at the federal level as well. Uh, we're excited about what this brings us. We wanted to start this early on purpose so that we could start to amass the resources, build the momentum, and, and pave the road to victory that comes so hard for Republicans in this state. I think this, this, this timeline works much better for us. Uh, donors uh, you know, have told me they don't want to see money squandered on a primary. They want to see us you know, articulate the differences between what our Republican vision is for New York and, and, and the terrible path that one party Democrat rule has taken this state on at this point. So the other candidates have said that they will take this to a primary next year. Do you think that they might reverse that? What's your sense of that? Do you think you can convince them that next year is the time for your party to join together and really be unified rather than split so early on in the primary before the general? Well, I, I think that um, I, I, d I never believed that the day after, you know, the straw poll people would be dropping out of uh, the race. I, I do think, you know, they're going to take their time. You know, there are other metrics that campaigns are run on and judged by. Uh, the July 15th fundraising filings are going to be important to that. We're mm -hmm. going to see, you know, what, what is the overall financial health of all these candidacies. You know, some candidates did not articulate how they're going to raise funds. Um, but it is, um, it's a reality that candidates are judged by. It's a 20 to $30 million proposition to be a successful statewide candidate. Uh, I know that Congressman Zeldin has you know, built the apparatus around his candidacy. I mean, he's, he's the center of the team, but he's building that team and bringing, you know, national level talent in to New York for the first time in a long time. You know, people are looking at this as I, as I travel in my role in the RNC and in and other places. Uh, I'm getting an awful lot of intrigued phone calls from people that have uh, not necessarily taken New York statewide politics seriously in a long time. Assuming Lee is the nominee, or I guess for any Republican candidate in the state, what do you think the strategy is going into next year's election cycle? Obviously, the last election cycle was not so great for Republicans in the state Senate. So I'm wondering, what are the top issues that you think can get voters to sign up for your candidates? Well, I think first and foremost, look to the New York City Democratic mayor's primary. What did it become? Yeah. Law and order. We've been singing this to high heaven as Republicans in this state. You know, unfortunately, you know, due to the pandemic last fall, uh, the issue got confused. And, but, but make no mistake, in every city, every town and village across this state, uh, people are seeing the effects of the disastrous bail reform, uh, criminal di discovery reform, uh, that, and, and they call it reform. I mean, they really destroyed our criminal justice system. Uh, that is going to be 
a first and foremost issue for us as we put forth a common sense agenda for New York uh, is how to make New Yorkers safe again. Mm. You know, New York City used to be the safest city in the world, and now it's not. It's the capital of the world, and right now it, it, it's, it's not what the taxpayers of that city deserve. So uh, criminal justice and public safety is A1. Uh, A2 is really, you know, making the state affordable again. That's the heart of it. That's that I think that's the thing, especially people upstate, I mean downstate too. You can't afford to start a life here for a lot of people, especially people just entering the job market. We have uh, an awful lot of people that I come across, you know, people in my personal life, but that are looking elsewhere, you yeah. know, and, and have, have taken this time during the pandemic to do a lot of reflection as to, you know, why am I here? We have to cauterize the wound. We have to stop the bleeding. We have to keep our people here, keep our families together. And the Republican Party in the state of New York is going to put together the best ticket we've run since 1994 that's running on a common sense agenda that can bring people together of all party affiliations. We know that we can't run for with some right wing agenda that's, you know, has, uh, um, you know, any sort of uh, extreme tendencies. This has to be about common sense. You know, let's get back to a centrist government that can, you know, lower the costs, lower the regulatory burdens and keep people here and actually attract talent, attract businesses, attract opportunity. I mean, th this is it's failure after failure. Andrew Cuomo has left a, ta a trail of economic tears that uh, we are going to you know, make sure that the people of the state understand how badly he has failed in terms of building this economy, and he squandered so much of their money in the process. So the issues of public safety and the issues of cost of living, they aren't new issues this election cycle. We had the same thing in 2020, but we did see Republicans lose in the state Senate. What do you think is different here that can give your candidates the leg up? Well, I, we're in for redistricting, first and foremost. Oh, true, um, yes. So, so that's going to be between us uh, in, in a new set of maps. So we're going we're gonna to see where that is. But no matter where it is, we're going to be fighting for votes. We are putting together candidates, hopefully, in every single one of those seats. Uh, with, with the pandemic coming on us quick and the petition process truncated, you know, our, our elections were really, you know, in many cases, interrupted. Uh, our candidacies were interrupted. And, you know, we were in a minority. We had gotten beaten back in 2018. Um, you know, and that's what led me to run for this, for the, the state chairmanship, because I saw a party that after it got absolutely shellacked and lost nine seats in the state Senate, we didn't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't know how to get up and go fight again. And I think we've restored the fighting spirit to the Republican Party in the state. And, you know, I think the Zeldin candidacy has demonstrated that. And, in, in the, you know, our candidates are, are tougher. Uh, they're willing to, you know, uh, throw the punches and, and call out the hypocrisy that goes on, you know, in our state capital and in our state government. And we are going to continue to look for uh, the best talented field that we could put forward in those races for assembly, state senate, congress, and right up the ticket. Uh, building that team, you know, putting a, a youthful face forward. I think is very important for us, you know, finding that next generation of leaders that can say, you know, this isn't about the way things were. This is about the way things need to be going forward. You know, we have to fight for New York's future. We have to fight to save this state. This is really, I believe in many ways, the last opportunity for us 
to get it done. All right. It's all very interesting. We do have to leave it there. State Republican Chairman Nick Langworthy, thank you so much. Thank you. And we're also scheduled to chat with another Republican contender for governor next week, Andrew Giuliani. But I want to circle back to the impeachment probe into the governor and other news from the week with Politico's Bill Mahoney. Thank you for being here, Bill. Thanks for having me. So the Assembly Judiciary Committee met this week. They did executive session, which is nobody's allowed in it for two hours. They emerged to say that they're issuing subpoenas. But we don't really know much more beyond that. What was your takeaway? They're moving along um, too slow for a lot of people's liking. If you look at a couple of the probes we have going on, um, Attorney General Tish James started hers right when this stuff started emerging late February, early March. She issued subpoenas by March. Yeah. Um, the Assembly launched this probe in early March. They decided a couple days ago that they were going to send subpoenas. Um, so they're not quite moving at the same pace as the Attorney General's investigation which could very well provide some fodder for some of these Republicans and other skeptics who are saying maybe they're not terribly interested in actually rushing this through and impeaching him and focusing on this as much as they should. Right. I, we have talked about this before, about the Assembly delaying the governor's impeachment, maybe on purpose. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I do think if they do get to the impeachment stage in the Assembly, that a lot of lawmakers may have lost their appetite to immediately overthrow the governor. As it was very popular in March, obviously. Well, we're hearing a lot less about it these days. Yeah. So it's something that most of the allegations are a few months old. Um, we've seen continual polls saying that people don't want the governor to leave immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and people are focused on other stuff. I think there's a bit of a burnt outness in Albany right now after the past year and a half we've had where it'll take a lot to get people to really want to spend August in the sweltering <laughs> state capital. <laughs> And once you get beyond that, we're kind of at the point where he'll be leaving soon enough anyways if he doesn't win a fourth term. Right. I'm wondering if this ends with the assembly dragging on the impeachment probe until like December, January, going that far. And I wonder if it ends with the governor saying, I'm not going to run for a fourth term. And then that satisfies lawmakers to not actually impeach him. And then he gets to keep some of his legacy. I don't I don't know. It's harder to know what the governor's thinking nowadays. And keep in mind, we've moved the primaries forward a bit since the last time we had a gubernatorial race. Right. So assuming he is going to follow through with his plans in a fourth term, this is all going to be decided by January, February, who actually is running. Um, so there's a chance that, yeah, this will all get piled up early this year. And I would not be surprised. And granted, we have no idea what they're going to find in these investigations yet. Right. If they find some terribly damning things that go even further beyond what we've heard and concrete, and concrete proof for some of the things that we have heard, that could put the pressure or maybe stuff could happen. But if it's more like confirming what we have heard to some degree, but without really adding anything new to the mix, it would not be terribly stunning if legislators are just, yeah, let's ride this out for a year and see who wins to succeed him in 2022. Exactly. You asked or, or maybe he'll find some way to just keep on carrying on and be the candidate himself. Wouldn't be surprised. But you asked a really interesting question this week to the Judiciary Chairman Chuck Levine. He didn't answer, obviously, but you asked, what do you consider an impeachable offense to Chuck Levine? Which is going to be really crucial if the Assembly takes it up, because I don't think it's defined in the Constitution. No, the federal Constitution, everybody who's paid attention to national politics the past few decades um, knows by now that it has this language about high crimes and misdemeanors and right. stuff like that, which you can debate what that means, but that is a definition. Mm -hmm. um, New York, if you go back to the original Constitution, their um, impeachable offense was MAL, M-A-L. No real definition, but there was something in there, but that fell off by the 1840s. 
And since then, what we saw with the William Sulzer impeachment um, 100 years ago, the only impeachment we've had in New York, mm -hmm. is it's whatever the legislature decides an impeachable offense is. There's no set definition. So if they decide that there's some misdeeds by him, there's no set definition for them to work off of. Um, and they'll have to decide, to me personally, every single member of the legislature is what he did an impeachable offense. And that could wind up becoming the defining question of Albany a few months from now. I think it will, because when you're looking at a criminal inquiry, there is a line that you cross when you say, I'm investigating and now I have the evidence to charge someone with this crime that is defined this way in statute. And I'm wondering if members of the assembly that have tried to back him in recent months may point to the stuff that, that comes out of the investigation and say, that doesn't rise to an impeachable offense for me. I think, I think they'll cover by saying, I think it's wrong what he did, but I'm not going to vote him out of office. I don't know where they end with that, though. Yeah, we'll have to see. And the other um, point is any impeachment, granted, during the summer, they're not doing a whole lot else in the Capitol. But if this is the type of thing that gets tried until January or February, it will completely derail government for a couple of months. Yes. Nobody will focus on passing any of their policy items. Every legislator who has 10, 12, 50 bills that they want to get passed next year those aren't happening. If we're going to be spending all day in 12-hour sessions hearing witnesses about what the governor did or didn't do, and that's just going to subsume everything. And I do think that is weighing against the likelihood of him being impeached, is that there are a lot of legislators who are like, I might want him gone, I might not like him, what he's accused mm -hmm. of is horrific, but let's not let all policy just be pushed aside for a year. And I think what we've seen so far is that is weighing on a lot of legislators' minds. They have projects, they have goals, things that they don't want to be distracted from getting done. And during an election year, I bet there is not so much appetite for lawmakers to not pass the bills that they can then run on later in the year. And once again, this is a June primary next year rather than the traditional September one. So sessions next year, it could take up the entire time before on their, their ballot. They'll have no time to do anything else, quite possibly, depending on when this whole process gets started. I love the uncertainty. I love how everything's up in the air. We do have to leave it there. Bill, thank you very much for being here. I always appreciate it. And thank you for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.